For those of you who don't know, we're doing a series called Perfectly Imperfect. And we've chosen 10 attributes or qualities, which would be 10. And we're going to talk about what it means to embrace those qualities. We're going to take one word each week, talk about what it means to embrace those qualities in the life of following Jesus and how that will grow us in health as a person, how that will bring us closer to Jesus. Anyway, tonight we're going to talk about resilience. Sound pretty good? Resilience. So the first question that we have to ask is in life, when we feel like running away from life, like life is a bad home that we just want to run away from and never go back and stomp our feet and just only take our blanket. When we feel like we want to run away from life, what do we do? How do we respond? Who do we become in those kind of situations? And what type of things make us want to run? All right, well, hopefully we'll be able to answer that question. So we're gonna talk about this based in the creation account. In the creation account, we're looking at who we're created to be and who we are in the image of God and what that means for how we do life. All right, so it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And into that, God said, let there be light. Right, so basically, the earth is formless, void, and dark. The earth is like a wasteland at this point in time. And God into that says, let there be life. He interacts with the chaos. And he brings light out of the chaos. Well, as we keep reading, he goes on creating the earth and the waters and the sea and the air. And then he fills the water with fish and the land with animals and the air with birds. And then on the sixth day, he creates the pinnacle of his creation. On the sixth day, he says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of likeness, in the image and likeness of God, he created a male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, as the pinnacle of creation, God creates this creature that is different than other creatures. He creates a creature that is actually made in his own image, unlike the other creatures, and he says to these creatures, I want you to do what I do. 
I want you to create, and I want you to be a king. And he gives them the ability to do that. Male and female, he created them. He says that you too can create life. I've passed my creativeness, my creativity onto you. He says, fill the earth, multiply. And then he says, I want you to be a king as well. I want you to have a dominion over every other living thing that I've created, over fish in the sea and birds in the air and animals on the land. I want you to be a king and have dominion over them, to name them and to bring order to this chaos, just like I do. So this is the background that we're talking about. When we begin the conversation about what it means to have resilience in the life of following after the Jesus way. You see, as God creates man in his image on the earth and he endows us with the Imago Dei, he calls us not to be bystanders in what is going on in this world, but he calls us to be participants in what he is doing in this world. He says, like you see me do, that I want you to do. Not bystanders, but participants. And we know that the story doesn't stay in paradise. That there is the fall of man and they disobey God and they fall from that original intended purpose. All of a sudden life is fractured. Man and women are torn apart. There is enmity between the woman and the serpent, the evil one who would cause destruction. There is now conflict between the man and the woman. Her desire will be for him, but he will rule over her. There's frustration in that relationship. He tells Eve to fill the earth, and now all of a sudden she has pain and childbearing. So that which she is made for it is now frustrated. He says to Adam, I want you to work the ground. I want you to have dominion. I want you to bring order to this chaos. And all of a sudden, the ground is cursed. And thorns and thistles come out. And that relationship is frustrated. The earth is fractured and not meant, and it's not as it was meant to be. And as every living thing on this earth experiences that frustration that is now almost built into this life, those areas where we're meant to find meaning and purpose and significance are now frustrated. There's a danger in there, in that when we decide to stop engaging in those things which we are called to, bringing meaning into the chaos, bringing order into the chaos, bringing light into the darkness, when we decide to stop doing those things for whatever reasons, we look to other sources in this life by which we can find meaning, purpose, and significance. And instead of living a life that pleases God and lives up to His design for our life, instead we start living a life that's looking to gratify the expectations of man. In fact, we become really good at it. We start being able to discern what it is that people want. And then we give them that. 
In fact, we start to discern what people want to hear. And when they ask us what we think, we don't always tell our opinion. We don't always tell what we think. We don't always say what we think is the truth of the matter. But to avoid conflict, we tell them what they want to hear. Living a life of gratifying the expectations of man as opposed to living a life that's gratifying the original intent of how God created us. Of course, he's God, so he knew what was going to happen. He knew. He did. As well as, you know, he created them. So yeah. the question is, why? Why? He knows what they, he has a plan for what they want to do. Yeah. And they, he knows they're going to do something else. Why would he just let them do what they want instead of telling them, you know, this is how I want it, and I make it this way. Yep, totally. That's the, That's the number one question. And who do we become when we start living the life of gratifying the expectations of man? We become these impersonators. We become these mask wearers. Every interaction, every relationship we have, whether it's parents, boss, friends, any relationship. We discover what it is they want and we become that in that scenario. Mask wearing impersonators. And we start to define ourselves not, the fa- not by the fact that we are endowed with the Imago Dei, not by the fact that we are created to be in the image of God and do particular things in this world. We start to define ourselves Not by who we are, but by what we do. I'm not a human being, I'm a human doing. I am what I do. I start to become busy to make myself feel important. I start to be funny around people so that they'll think I'm a value to have around. I start talking intelligently when I'm around smart people so that smart people will say that I'm smart. Why do we do this? I don't know. And even if we're aware of it, we still do it. But in all of these things, all of these ways in which we try to gain the approval and fill in and fit into the expectations of man, as we're doing all of those things, we're still running. We're living a life, running away from who we really are. This doesn't sound too good, does it? Well, think about this. Have you guys seen, like, a car accident, a wreck on the freeway? Right? Here's what happens on the California freeways. There's an accident, and very few people... What? I know. Very few people, I think, are ever the actual people who see the wreck take place. Most of us see the wrecked, the wreck in the aftermath, hours after it happened, right? Because what automatically happens, like I'm sure there's a slowing down of traffic because this is taking place with cars and they're hitting the side or whatever they're doing. I'm one of those And what most people are is what we call looky-loos, right? Looky-loos pass by the wreckage and they look at it 
And curiosity is just their main motivation right now. Like, oh my gosh, this is terrifying. There could be like people torn apart in this. There could be people like, but I have to see. Right? And curiosity gets the best of us because even though this is possibly a morbid thing, we want to know the exact details of what is going on over there. So everybody does the looky-loo rubbernecker thing, right? And they're like driving like this but not looking and they're looking at the wreckage. And I bet you people inside these vehicles, as they're looking upon the wreckage, even start having conversations about what they would have done if they were that driver and how they, with their far superior driving skills, could have avoided the wreck altogether. Clearly, you shouldn't have turned your wheel that much. And clearly, if you had had your blinker fluid full, like... The other guy would have known that you were coming into his lane because slow down. And if your hazard lights were going the entire time, then people would know that, you know. And we start doing the advice thing from a spectator vantage point. Yeah. From a spectator vantage point, we start having conversations inside the car, far removed from the wreckage, about what should have happened. And as we look at the emergency response people, the paramedics and the fire department and the police officers and whoever's there, we probably even start having the conversations about what they should be doing to make this situation right. Well, if they would just move it over, if they would just get the dang guy out of the car with the dang jaws of life, if they would just put some flares on the road, we could all be moving right now and this wouldn't be a traffic jam on I-5 and we're in rush hour and I wouldn't have to be wasting my life right now. We're giving advice from the position of a spectator about what's going on in the wreckage. But I want to say that from the spectator point of view, from the spectator vantage point, we understand very little about what's actually going on in the wreckage. And I think in this life, on this side of the fall, on this side of everything being fragmented in conflict, in us not being able to find a meaning, purpose, and significance in precisely the way that we were meant to, Sometimes this life can be like a giant car wreck. We see people's bodies and their health wrecked. We see marriages wrecked. We see finances wrecked. We see families wrecked. We see friendships wrecked. We see hopes, dreams, aspirations wrecked. We see people gain prosperity and it gets wrecked. See people trust in a relationship and they get betrayed and it gets wrecked. All of a sudden this life turns into a giant wreckage. And what do we do when we see that wreckage? If we're still stuck in the place of trying to gratify every person's expectations. What do we do if we're spending life still running away from realities, living in an illusioned world? 
When we see the wreck, what do we do? When we see the wreckage in people's lives, we probably look away. We probably pretend that it's not there. And we just don't talk about it, and we don't allow others to talk about it. In fact, we might get a little disgruntled if you even bring up the subject. We whistle in the dark. Ever like walking through a shady place at an hour you're not supposed to be there, and you're trying to make light of the situation and act like you're not, your life is not in mortal danger? You start whistling in the dark to pretend that life is okay. To give yourself some sort of comfort for all the tension that's swirling around in your head, in your heart, in your body. We build emotional defenses. If we experience the wreckage, we say, oh, nah, I am never going to experience that wreckage again. I will build walls. I will build defenses. I will never trust again in that way. I will make it so that I can never experience this wreckage again because this, this wreckage is unbearable. And we keep pretend hopes up. We live in a fantasy land where we build a fantasy reality, an illusioned reality, not reality. Where we say, oh, this is going to happen and this is going to go this way. But when we live in that fantasy land, we live in our ivory tower up on a hill. We're not dealing with people as they really are. We're not dealing with situations as they really are. We're not dealing with chaos as it really is, conflict. We're not dealing, we're still running. We're still running away from life, from the realities of life. Well, this can sound like a pretty terrible existence if this is the end of the story. At some point, we get the courage to enter into the wreckage. Understanding very well that as we enter into the wreckage, we will never be the same. We enter the wreckage because God himself entered the wreckage. He had an earth that was formless, void, and dark. And into the chaos, into the wreckage, he brought light. He had a world that disobeyed and turned his back on its creator. And yet he loved so greatly that he entered the wreckage and became the darkness to change it from the inside out. When we really enter into the wreckage, we find out a few things. Find out who we are and what we're made of. We find out 
what we're capable of. We find out why we're here and how we can contribute to God's work of redeeming the wreckage. We find a calling, we find a vocation. See, a job is where I figure out what people want me to do and I just do whatever that is. I gratify the expectations of man. Whatever they're expecting, I do it. It may be a little better than they were expecting so that they're happy with me. A job is trying to make someone happy, like your boss. A vocation, a calling, says even if nobody is looking, I will do this because this is what I am made to do. A vocation says, these are my gifts, talents, and abilities. This is what I was created for. And with this, I will connect my work with the work of the Creator. And as He enters into the wreckage to redeem it from the inside out, I will participate in that. In whatever way, I am made to do that. Michelangelo was a Renaissance man. And he lived during the 15th and 16th century. And he was from Italy. And he was very good at sculpture, painting. He did frescoes. He was good at poetry, philosophy. He was an all-around just good at everything that was important at that time in history kind of guy. Anything that you were wondering, hey, are you good at this? Michelangelo was good at that. He painted the entire ceiling of the Sistine Chapel with a fresco. And it's, you know, we're most familiar with that thing of, like, God and Adam, like, almost touching, like, scrolling around, like, can we make it? And, and he's also famous for the sculpture of the David, right? Like, David, the one that slew Goliath. And this David is carved out of marble, and he's, like, standing there. And you remember, like, the Bible describes David as a ruddy man, right? Which I take to mean he was, he was good looking, right? And he had it going on, to put it in our modern day vernacular. And David's, like, standing there. I want to tell you what he was wearing. <laughs> and he's got, he's got his sling over his shoulder because he just slew Goliath. And you can imagine the emotions that are going through David's mind as he just slew this giant man of the Philistines in front of his nation. And everybody's like, we'll make him the king. And David's sitting there with a sling on his shoulder, just like, yeah, what? But like, David had his swag going on. And he's looking off to the side... And you're like, David, what are you looking at? But he has the most intense look on his face. Like, I just slew Goliath. Well, Michelangelo, before this statue existed, 
It existed in his brain only. And maybe in his fingertips. And whatever else it requires to build a sculpture. And all he had was a hunk of marble. And Michelangelo looked at that hunk of marble and he said, what do you see? What do you see? And people are like, I don't know, marble, like white marble, like white marble with some veins in it. It's like kind of, it's kind of big, you know? Yeah. And Michelangelo, I can just imagine, is going, you know what I see? There is a David inside of that marble. In fact, Michelangelo is quoted as saying, speaking of this slab of marble that he had, that he made the David out of, I didn't see a big hunk of marble. I saw a David. And I had to chisel and carve and chip away and polish until I set him free from the marble. Michelangelo saw a chunk of nothing and made it into a masterpiece of beauty that is still around today and that people still are in awe about. Michelangelo went into the chaos where he was unsure of what would happen on the other side. And he said, I will bring meaning, purpose, and significance out of this nothingness. Well, there's a great epic called the Odyssey. And the Odyssey tells an epic story of this guy named Odysseus. Get it? Odyssey? Odysseus. <laughs> and he was this Greek guy. And an epic tells the story of a hero's journey. And Odysseus is the hero, but he's like flawed. You know? And he feels this call to go onward, out into the great beyond, into the unknown, into the chaos, so to speak. And to go adventure, and to go find his meaning, purpose, and significance. And to leave his home and everything that is comfortable, and to enter into something that he knows nothing about. And on this way, he runs into all kinds of problems and he meets like gods and they give him a bag of wind and then he like in encounters these lotus eaters and they're like eat some lotus and he's like spoiler. yeah spoiler alert uh and and he goes on this huge epic journey and he like fights giants and no 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 it's a cyclops he fights a cyclops all this stuff and he gets through each moment in this journey like, just by the hair on his chinny-chin-chin, chin, you know? Yet he keeps going. And there's this one part in the story when he encounters the sirens. Now, the sirens are these apparently beautiful ladies that chill out on an island together. And you're thinking, they're just on an island. It's just a bunch of ladies, and there's no food on this island. How do they stay alive? 
They eat sailors, that's how. And they're like some kind of crazy Venus flytrap where they sing this beautiful song and they're so captivating in their beauty that lonely sailors out at sea are sailing along and they go, ah, oh. you know, and they're like a moth to the flame. They're like sucked right in. They're like, you're everything that I've ever wanted. And they go to this island and all of a sudden these beautiful sirens who are singing this lovely captivating song eat them alive. Just like that. You're like, oh my gosh, that's terrifying. Well, all of the stuff that Odysseus encounters on this journey is terrifying. And he knows about the sirens. And he knows about the temptation to give in to the siren call. And he knows that you can't just cover your ears. Because the resisting the siren call would be so overwhelming that men would jump into the water and swim to their own death. So here's what Odysseus said to his men. Men, we are going to lash ourselves to the mast. Right? Ships have giant sails. And those sails were attached to a giant mast a big log in the center of the ship that raised up high, and it was huge in circumference. So he gathered his crew with him. He says, we are going to lash ourselves to the mass. We are going to set our sails. We are going to set our rudder in the way that we want to go, and we are going to lash ourselves to the mass. And no matter how tempting the siren's call is, we won't give in because we're lashed to the mass. That's commitment. That's what I call stick with itness. They couldn't go over it, they couldn't go under it, they couldn't go around it. They had to go through the wreckage. And they said, no matter what we encounter along the way, no matter how tempted we are to divert from the path, we will stay lashed to the mast. That's resilience. When we hear the siren call, to gratify the expectations of men, to just make people happy, to appease them, to get them off our case. When we stop running from life and we decide to enter the wreckage, last to the mass, lash to the mass. And we say, I will go through this no matter what happens, no matter how hard it is. Because when I go through it, I will find out who I am. I'll find out what I'm made of. And I will find out how I, personally, can bring meaning, purpose, and significance to nothingness.
how many people are Michelangelo's that could have brought a David out of a hunk of marble and never knew about it because they never tried because they didn't want to fail because they didn't want people to point at them and laugh and say, ha, you failed and you're like, wow well, that wasn't so bad and here's the thing about entering the wreckage it feels terrible when you start out it feels scary when you start out Some people never even start. They spend their whole life running away from what they don't want to happen. But once you start, and maybe get a couple chinks in your armor, and once you find out, hey, I'm not perfect, but they're not perfect either. Once you find out what you're made of, because you've actually gone through the wreckage and tested for yourself the water, you transition from being a spectator, a looky-loo, a rubbernecker, who has no idea what's going on in the wreckage, but is quite comfortable criticizing and giving plenty of advice to the people who are actually in there doing something. You transition from that critical, judgmental, uninformed, unexperienced spectator to a more mature participant. And you look different on the other side of doing that. You have to become mature in that process. There's no other option. You will be transformed if you enter into the wreckage. And that's okay. Because what we're transformed into, if we're following Jesus into the wreckage, we're transformed to look more like him. And what we start to see when we follow Jesus by faith into the wreckage and stop running away from life itself we find Davids everywhere or at least the potential for Davids it might start out looking like a hunk of marble. But all of a sudden we go, I know what to do with this. I know how to make this into something. I can make something beautiful out of the nothingness. Out of the fear, out of the chaos, out of the conflict, out of the broken lives and broken relationships and broken bodies, broken friendships, the betrayals. Stop being the spectators who go, oh man, that's terrible. Look away. Don't look over there. I'm just going to walk over in this direction and hopefully not see some wreckage for a while. 
we start to see just like Jesus sees. Like he saw us when we were wrecked and said, I will make that wrecked thing my bride. Pure, spotless, and blameless. I will restore her from her wreckage to her beauty. We start to see the ugliness and the brokenness and the wreckage as something that can be redeemed and something that can praise the Lord. And we figure out that we were made to do that. And we're filled with like this kind of confidence. You're like, yeah, I could do this. You with me? Come on. Are we going to go? go and then all of a sudden it's not so scary when you're doing it with other people and you're doing it together and someone's got your back and you stop looking at life like it's just a bunch of wreckage and you start seeing this could be a David. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, teach us resilience. Show us how to lash ourselves to the mast. Bring us under your wing, under your protection. God, show us that entering the wreckage is not quite so scary as we thought it was. God, show us how we can participate in your redemptive work. Give us the courage to stop being...